Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we're here today with Dr. Luann Brizendine, MD, who is the Times bestselling author of The Female Brain and the Male Brain. She's the Lynn and Mark Benioff Endowed Chair in Clinical Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and founder of UCSF's Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic, which she started in 1994. She lives in Sausalito, California with her husband. And we're excited to be talking with her today about her newest book, The Upgrade, How the Female Brain Gets Stronger and Better in Midlife and Beyond. Dr. Brizendine delivers actionable, science-backed steps for preserving brain health. And she never uses the words perimenopause or menopause in her book with their suggestions of obsolescence. And she illustrates the possibilities of this time of life through intimate stories. So for years, women have been told by society to dread the second half of life with no support available beyond expensive ointments and procedures promising to reverse the signs of aging. But thanks to Dr. Luann Brizendine, that's all about to change. So Dr. Brizendine, Luann, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Well, thank you, Gail, and thank you, Catherine, for having me. I can't tell you how delighted I am to be here speaking with the two of you and also with your audience, since your audience is near and dear to my heart. They're the reason I wrote this book. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you well, for doing so. We have a lot of questions for you, and uh, perhaps you'd like to start by telling us what does the upgrade actually mean, and why is it a gateway for the best years of our lives? So there are a lot of reasons for that. I decided to call it the upgrade because everybody was just expecting the downgrade, right? After I mean, the poor women in their 30s and 40s are looking forward and they're thinking, oh gosh, you know, everything after 50, it's all over. Well, I, I beg to differ and I changed the names. I don't use the word menopause or um, perimenopause in the book because, <clears throat> you know, the word menopause and perimenopause are, are, are medical terminologies that are, and pharmaceutical um, industry uses those very narrow definitions. It's a tiny part of what's going on when our and ovaries retire and what happens to us hormonally, but it's not the whole woman. All of us know, all of us women who are 70 above, and I'm just about to be with you guys too. Are, it's just so different than that. It's not it's, things are not over at that time. And it's not like we're just a tiny little slice of a medical definition post menopause. I mean, how many have we all been in this group? How many of you, you know, you go in and your medical chart says, uh, you know, 75 year old postmenopausal woman, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, what? I mean, it's such a, I, I, it, anyway, I feel it's pejorative and it's only just, it's not the whole woman approach. And so I wanted to write a book about the whole woman's experience going through the transitions that we all go through and in 50 and above. And remember, once those waves of the hormones up and down, you know, with the menstrual period and then the, 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 estrogen going very high right before ovulation, which makes us be flirtier, sway our hips more, raise our voice more, a little bit more. I mean, in terms of the pitch of our voice, you know, we're trying to catch the best sperm at that age. We're not trying anymore to catch the best sperm. We're, we're done with that. That's done. And, you know, it's a, and, and it helps, you know, makes you into a people pleaser. You don't want to cause conflict. You know, you kind of quiet your quiet your uh, strong voice into, a, a, you know, a kind of a, 
a more pleasing, less confrontative voice, you know, all the things that we do in dress sexier, but the waves of hormones that are actually, we don't realize that biology is destiny unless we recognize what it's doing to us. And those hormones push our behavior and in ways that it's under the hood. We don't even know, ladies, it's doing it. And then once we're released from that, we have the upgrade. We're not having the brain circuits. See, the brain circuits, I guess the reason, the point I'm trying to make about it is the brain circuits are changing every week of the month during the menstrual cycle years. And then the cool thing is that after we go through the transition into the upgrade, we're not having those waves of hormones build up circuits in our brain and tear them down. We have much more stability. It's just more constant every single day of our lives. And we don't have to go through that change in our brain circuitry every single month. And voila, here we are. A better, a better brain, a better brain, an upgraded brain. That's the, so long. That's a long-winded way to tell you, Gail, what what the reason I called it the upgrade. <laughs> okay. Catherine, you had a question. Well, I do. So I can don't remember exactly where in your book, but you talk about the cells that are. Oh, oh my gosh! Where's my note? It was really important. Oh, repairing our brain cells. And so um, we, our brains may be more stable now because we don't have that fluctuation of hormones, but there's still activity going on. And there's, oh my goodness, yes. So if you could talk about that a bit, some of the, how do we prevent the decline and how do we you know, keep those, those cells activated. Right. So that's what I'd like to talk with you ladies about today is just the, the, how, how to keep your best brain health, how to keep everything working. So remember the brain cells are always zing, 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 talking to each other, you know, all day long, all night long, 24 seven, that's what brain cells do. And remember this, this lovely, like 11 pound thing, you know, our head and our brain, the whole thing, the brain is about three pounds, but our, you know, the stuff we're calling carrying around our neck, our whole head's about 11 pounds. It's like up there and it's just waiting for us to use it. All of the connections in our brains are just waiting to be used. And they, um, of course, zing, zing all day long. When we do things, we go out for our walks. We talk to our friends on the phone. We make our cup of coffee. All of those things we do, our brain is working mad to do all of those things. So it's not like when we're finished with the you know hormone fluctuations that anything is finished. It's just that things are much more stable at that point. And um, we are, you know, the interesting study that some of you may know about was done at Stanford over many, many, many years um, that looked at different decades of people's lives and how happy they were in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And actually, Every single decade that they looked at up until the 90s, people actually get happier yeah. each decade of their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you know, you, um, you talk about mindset a lot and you yeah. talk about how our brain changes and how that interacts with our brain health. Talk a little bit about the, the dietary requirements and the what 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 is it, what is there about that that is important to our brain health? Well, so one of the things we need to do is all of all of the cells in our body, including our brain, all all need to have the right nutrients. Right? That's a, that's just a, you need the foundation of nutrients on the one hand, and especially for women in our age group, you don't want other medications that are going to be harming to 
the different brain connections, right? So I talk about a lot of that in the book. So we want the nutrients. We need all of the vitamin B12s and all of the vitamins and all of the things that we can get from. And I suggest, I mean, just for the basic, basic thing people need to do is eat, eat a healthy Mediterranean style diet. You know, that basically means you're not eating processed foods. You're not eating junk foods that have like that, all kinds of things that we can't use. You don't want to every single thing in the body, like the pancreas, you know, that makes insulin, the, um, you know, the, and your heart muscle, all of your, and the microbiome through your gut, which I talk a lot about the, the, the brain, we call it the second brain. This the second brain is in our gut, you know, the nutrients and things that we absorb and the things that those healthy bacteria down there make for us, all of those things are getting into our bloodstream and going to the brain. And we need to like, we need to give it supplies. We need to give the brain the supplies basically that it needs every single day by getting those nutrients into our body. And the cognitive function really improves if you're eating the right foods and getting the right nutrients. I think that the, yes, I mean, the bottom line is if you're not eating the right nutrients, the cognitive function can decline, especially things that we've, we've known for many, many years, things like B12 or B1, you know, a, a lot of the vitamins that we, we, if we don't have them, it causes glitch, glitches in our, in our brain function, in the way the neurons communicate with each other. And so, you know, we, we definitely do not want that. And we don't want, um, we don't want certain medications. And I talk about this in the book, particularly in chapter 14, you know, about, about medications that can harm our cognition. And I think that's, people don't realize that over-the-counter medicines are also things that have things that can, you know, either hurt or harm your brain, but the, the medicines that are what we call in the category of anticholinergic medications, things like the trade names like Benadryl, right. Or antihistamines, they actually do they make um, people can become what I call medication cognitively impaired. So it's a cognitive impairment that comes from a medic from a medication that changes your brain function for the worse. So I like to take people off as many of those as we can get people off of. I mean, you know, if you have an occasional allergy or something and you need to take something for your allergies, you know, a few days, I'm not worried about that. I mean, that, that, that may make you a little fuzzy brain may give you a little cog, little brain glitches, but it's the, it's the chronic use of various medications that I, I want to have women know about and know the list to look at of the do takes and don't takes for your best brain health. Hmm. You know, you talk about uh, early, early in the book, and I think this speaks to women of all ages, uh, but certainly 50 and on probably about um, with in this upgrade, we uh, we have more freedom. We have renewed purpose. We have clearer focus. And can you say a little bit about that? And then also how you see that connecting with self care. So I think that one of the things that all of us women know is that we when that there are a lot of things that are happening between. If you think about how fit between age fifty and sixty, so many things change for a lot of women. Um, we are, we stop the, the waves of hormones, right? And we basically often have the empty nest if we're raising kids. We are doing some kind of maybe transition with our career in some kind of way or another. Maybe our marriages or our family life or something within that network is, is shifting in some kind of way. Um, 
And, you know, we are therefore shifting a lot during those, those years as well. So um, the, um, and maybe tell me a little bit more about where you would like me to go with like how to shape that, um, that time. Well, I think the, the way the part about how you talk about self-care in your book is that we, we've been, most of us, our age group have been raised to be um, care for others. And so with this, with this new sense of focus and freedom and um, more attention to our ourselves without being selfish. But um, so I'm really interested in how you think about self-care and what uh, messages you really want us to hear about why that's important. Thank you, Catherine. That, that, so this, the word, don't we all, don't all of us women hear that word selfish in that, in that horrible way. So I want to counter in this, I want to counteract that because I believe that this, that all the studies show that self-care and being the best that we each can be then makes us more available to be helpful to others. So I think that's the basic principle. We cannot, it's like on an airplane, right? They tell you, put your oxygen mask on yourself first so that you can help others. I think that needs to be your basic principle in the upgrade because you need to have all of the self-care that you can have so that your brain and body are your best selves to be able to be helpful and loving to others, which is what we like like to be. And I really think we should ban the word selfish from our from our vocabulary at this age. I think over I think the upgrade includes like getting rid of that word that echoes in our in our ears because usually when someone calls us selfish it's because they aren't getting something that they want. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. You know, so let's be let's be clear. Let's they're not getting something that they want. And so uh, we, we have to figure out the compromises in our lives that will be that will be workable so that we women also get the best that we can so we can put our oxygen masks on first. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm uh, having turned 80 myself. I, I'm particularly interested in your discussion of leg strength, in which you say that it correlates directly with healthy brain function. So how did you mean that? Are there specific? Oh, there's very great. There's, some, there's a lot of studies, of course, you know, there's a lot of studies of cognition in 80 year old women. This particular one was a big study of cognition in women at 80. And they looked, you know, they did, they, they, they tested the cognition of, of a huge group of women in their eighties. And they discovered, interestingly enough, that the women in the highest category, the top fifth of those women in the highest category also had the greatest leg strength. Now, I think that's something that if your audience hears nothing else from what I say today, that study should ring in your ears day and night because that means that there's something about the muscles in your body that are communicating with the brain Mm -hmm. in a very positive way. And there's more and more and more about that. Just last week in the in JAMA, they did a huge study of eight or nine thousand people in Canada and found the same kind of thing. The people with the best cognition also had the best muscle strength. So it's very clear that that muscles and brain go together. And that's why, you know, I, I've been doing a little social media lately. It's not my forte, but I've had to learn to do it a little bit with the, with this book. And I put a little bit of a, a 30 second video on both Instagram and on TikTok. And I said, like, the be- a special, special tip for you ladies that want to have the best brain health is do 
a hundred butt squeezes a day because one of the biggest muscles in our body, ladies, oh, yeah. is our is our rear end. And we are often sitting on it. So when you're sitting on it, give it okay, right now everybody give it about 10 nice squeezes, 10 nice squeezes, or when you're standing brushing your teeth or you're at the grocery, you're standing in line somewhere. The butt squeezes can really strengthen that muscle, which is directly related to brain health. And we know that it has to do with things that the muscles release into the bloodstream when they're being squeezed or when they're being strengthened, mm -hmm. release it into the bloodstream and it goes to the brain, communicating with the brain in all kinds of ways. So this is another big pitch, of course, for all of us to keep those muscles as strong as possible. If you do, I mean, B12 is important. Nutrition is important, but this one, ladies actually yes. may even trump that. <laughs> I just heard on NPR that if you can stand on one leg for 10 seconds, mm -hmm. you are indicating a longer life than if you can't do that. Yes. Now, I don't know but whether Catherine's gotten to that part in the book yet, but I talk a lot in the book about a lot of the muscle strength thing. But in particular, I talk about an area of the brain called the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of at the, if you touch the back of your neck, just hit the back of the, the lower part of your skull, you know, that place when they massage you that they kind of push that feels mm -hmm. so good. So right inside there are, are two little lobes called the cerebellum. They kind of look like two big testicles hanging at the base of your brain, you know, when you look at the actual brain. <laughs> so they're there <laughs> and they haven't been studied very much because they're so low down. So when they do the brain scans, they usually are doing stuff, uh, you know, above that area. Now they started to look at what that area does. And the standing on one leg that you talk about, Gail, that standing on one leg for 10 seconds stimulates the cerebellum immensely. What the cerebellum does, remember the cerebellum, we used to call it the sports brain. You know, it's the thing that helps you like put the basket in the hoop and, you know, you do it's eye-hand coordination and being ba balanced. It's called, it's, it used to be called just the, the balance part of the brain. So that standing on one leg thing that you can do, that's a great thing to do, by the way, while you're standing at the counter, um, brushing your teeth or, or doing your coffee in the morning, just, 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 just count to 10, stand on one leg and count to 10. It will stimulate your cerebellum, which then actually, it's the editor of a lot of the rest of your brain, the way you think the way you feel it does. We're discovering that it actually is one of the, the editors of the rest of your brain about your, your feeling tone, your emotions it has a lot to do with your emotional stability. So stand on one leg for emotional stability, ladies. Stand on one leg. I mean, do your mindfulness meditation too, but then get up and stand on your one leg. I think the combination, actually, now that I'm thinking, now I'm saying uh, that, you know, the combination of that, of mindfulness and yoga may become more and more what we are all ending up doing for our, our brain health. Mm. <laughs> okay. Well, there were other areas that you talked about in your book. And, um, you know, sleep is one of them. So I'd like to hear more. Oh, about yeah. So I, I, I have special training in sleep from my, when I was training at Harvard, I had a couple of very early uh, sleep uh, researchers that I uh, trained specially with in sleep disorders and sleep problems. And so sleep has been near and dear to my heart for, of course, decades and decades. And um, the reason, the cool thing that we've now learned 
this is if you don't learn anything else from this, also learn this besides squeezing your button standing on one leg. This bit about sleep that I'm going to tell you is also like really key to your to your brain health, which is when you sleep, the brain cells kind of shrink back from each other. Usually they're connecting all day long, they're chatting away, they're overlapping, da, 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 da. and then at night they kind of shrink back down away from each other, opening up a little space in between them, kind of like a little tiny stream or river can go through it, which is where the brain hoses out. It flushes out all the garbage that's connected, that's collected during the day. So if you don't get good sleep, you're not going to flush out all the garbage every night for cleaning out your brain. You're not going to wake up with a fresh brain unless you sleep. So ladies, pay attention to sleep. That is not, get rid of that laziness word. I'm too lazy. I just want to sleep. You need sleep. And I think as we age, the sleep, the sleep comes in different packs times as we get older. Sometimes you can sleep for a con three and a half. The cycles of sleep are about three and a half hours. You need like about two, three and a half hour cycles per night, at least to get the good sleep. And lots of people, as we get older, wake up in the middle of the night for a little bit of time. I have some girlfriends who will wake up sometimes they're used to waking up for maybe an hour and they maybe read or get up and do so, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens in the middle of the night. You just have to like get yourself ready to then go back down to sleep for another three and a half or four hours. I mean, even if you're at, up at seven o'clock in the morning for whatever reason, and you didn't get a good night's sleep, find a way to get yourself a two hour nap or something during the day. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to nap regularly, but you know, for those days where you just didn't get the right amount and you get up and you know, oh my God, I'm, this is not going to be a good day because I didn't get enough restful sleep. Just know the garbage didn't all get flushed out of your brain and you need to go back down for a few hours to let the garbage collectors can I mean, you know, in Paris, how they hose down the streets in the morning with those little green machines. You need to let the little little guys that go hose down your brain, go back to work for a couple of hours. So sleep, sleep is sleep. Sleep is the queen. Sleep is the queen in our brain, as, especially as we get older. So we really need to value our sleep as much as we value being awake. It's, Indeed. It's, yes. We don't have to feel. Well, that we sleep. certainly weren't raised that way. I wasn't. <laughs> no, me either. It's like, you know, if you're asleep, especially remember the teenage years and your sleep cycle changes hugely in your teenager. You know, you do, you go to bed later and you sleep in later, which is just the natural way that what's called the circadian rhythm changes in their brains because of the hormones at that time. And it takes at least about um, five to 10 years for it to go back to what we think of as the normal adult pattern. So Anyway, don't make those teenagers get out of bed too soon or else they'll be very cranky. <laughs> my, my daughter went to an alternative high school and uh, they didn't start till 10 o'clock. Bravo. That's that how reason. it should be. For yeah. teens, for teen, the teen brain should definitely, school should not start before 10. <laughs> you, you talked a little bit uh, uh, in your book about an experience that you had when you got so sick, I believe, and you you talked with all these doctors and you didn't feel heard and it it really informed how you wanted to move on in, in your own medical career and all you want to tell us a little bit about that 
Yeah, it was a very, because I was young too, you know, I was maybe, maybe about um, like 24, 25, and I'd been doing graduate work in at UCL, University College London in London. So I was, you know, i have been a Yale medical student. I took a, um, a year special fellowship to finish my dissertation in London. And so I was there and um, I'd been traveling with some of my girlfriends, one of my girlfriends and I went down the Nile together and stuff during the spring break that year. And so all the doctors thought that maybe I'd gotten some African disease, you know, so I got tested for African disease, all kinds of disease. Cause I got very, very, very sick, very, very tired, very, you know, I just, nothing, nothing was working right. I'd never been sick, sick quite like that before. And I had every test run. And then they, they started when you don't, when you don't respond like they want you to respond, then they send in the psychiatrist, right? Then they send, they say, they say, okay, well, maybe it's all in your head, right? It's all in your head, or maybe it's psychological. So they would send in the psychologist to talk to me to see if I still had my sense of humor or something, you know, whatever they did. So I just, I just learned how the medical profession treats you when they can't figure out just what it is. They, you're making them feel impotent and that they can't do something for you and you're frustrating them. And rather than they're feeling some compassion for you and saying, you know, I'm sorry, we don't really know exactly what it is. And being honest with you about it, they they throw more and more tests at you, right? And they, they don't listen to you. And so I, I really learned firsthand what it's like to be a patient that is um, where they're working you up. And I, you know, I felt to myself, even that says, well, I hope it, I hope, I mean, I don't care if it's cancer or something. I just hope they find something to tell me what it is. You know, so I was quite, you know, I was in that, that state of like, I had nobody, how to tell your family, how to tell your, the Dean of my, my medical school didn't want to give me any time off because I didn't have a diagnosis. So mm-hmm. I really learned what a burden it is for the poor patient. And it definitely informed me for the rest of my career to be very devoted to listening to the patient, whatever it is. And if I don't know, I can continue to help them find some other doctors that maybe know more. And I, it really um, helped me not have a big ego as a doctor. Do you know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. I felt like um, um, there's no ego involved when you're trying to help another person, you know, you're trying to help them get better. You're not, you're not trying to prove how smart you are. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, part of that also then must be that you're also probably helping your patients learn to listen to their bodies. Because you talk about that in the book as well. And um, so how how does that, can you say more about that, about the importance of us being able to listen to our bodies? Yeah, I think that we're taught, you know, um, we're taught, I think we don't listen enough to um, ourselves as women. We don't listen enough to our own intuition and we don't listen enough to our own bodies. And um, we may be running off to the doctor to help have the doctor tell us. And, you know, I know there's lots of this, of course, there's huge numbers of women. When I started in medical school, there were, I mean, I know that, you know, my husband's also a doctor, but he trained in a different generation. There were only like about six women in his medical school at Columbia in New York. And by the time I was in medical school, there were about 25% women. So it's not like it is now today. It's like, it's, it's at least half. And I, I think it's the feminization of medicine in my mind has only has been a really good thing. <laughs> have more people who not, but not. I'm, I listen. I have a lot of women doctor friends who do not listen very well to their patients, and I've been to a lot of women doctors who, you know, they just want to show you how smart they are. You know, it's it's a kind of a it's a it's a cultural thing in the medical profession that they 
need to take a little bit of a look at themselves. But uh, to answer your question, uh, you know, it's um, you know we're we're not um, we're not taught as women to listen to our bodies. We're taught maybe to take a pill to take something away, or to which is not which is not a bad thing at all. But I think that um, to take a pill to take something away is our go-to in this culture, right? Just quickly take it away. Now, I'm not suggesting people should suffer. You know, I can remember having really bad menstrual cramps when I was a a teenager. And in those days, all there was was aspirin. Remember, you take so much aspirin that your ears would ring. Do you ladies remember (laughs) taking so much aspirin, your ears would ring? And that was in the days before even Motrin came out. There was nothing like Advil. There was nothing over the counter. So you know, it was, uh, it was, um, and I'm not suggesting that, that women should suffer in that kind of way. Now we have very good things, but, um, I think that working with the, the reason to listen to your body, the bottom, the reason to listen to your body is that working with your body, working with your body, listening to the signals from your own body will inform you of how to help your body heal itself. And, um, you know, healing your body, healing, letting your body heal itself. The body will heal itself. I mean, the body is built in many ways to heal itself. And even, you know, cancer treatments and things that people have, you know, the body, all of those have to work with the body to heal itself. And once the cancer is killed, killed off, your body needs to go back to actually healing, finish healing itself over the next few years. And, you know, all of us have had friends, or personal experiences with cancer and watched people um, just in, you know, a few years get very much better, but it's a lot of it comes from like honoring your body's signals to signaling your brain to tell you what's wrong and what it needs. So I just encourage women to do that. I don't want to discourage people from going to doctors or getting medical care. It's just that listen to your body first, write things down, write everything down before you walk into the doctor's office. There's I can't tell you, I do that even myself because you cannot just go in there. Your mind may go blank. Once you get in there, there's so much activity in the doctor's office or whatever test you're going through, really write things down. And I, I really believe that women should take an advocate with them. I know it's been almost impossible during COVID to do that, which I think has really been very harmful to many of us not to be able to go to the doctor with another person, but I encourage women to go with their friend go with their daughter, go with their husband, go with their, you know, go with somebody maybe who's been through a similar thing. It just, what it does, if nothing else is it, it calms you down. It calms you down enough to like focus on why you're there and to put words to what your body's telling you. As we, um, the time goes so fast and, and it's been so interesting, but as we start to close, uh, I, how do you see the second half of life and what are, you know, what are some of the, the positives that you see that you feel is, is why this is an upgrade to be in your, in the second half of your life? Oh, Gail, that's a wonderful question. I mean, enthusiasm for taking on new projects and having new purpose. I mean, it doesn't just mean like you're going to, you're going to go join the Peace Corps and go to Rwanda. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not that you might do that though. You might decide to do that. Mm -hmm. Be bold. Be bold and enthusiastic about the second half because you have so many choices that you're going to make. You're, you know, you're finished with the baby child rearing stage of life. And, you know, it's just, there is an opening. It's like a dance card. 
all of a sudden your dance card's got five or six extra slots on it and you get to choose what you put in there. And, you know, you can always think of the reasons why not. Well, I can't do this because of this, or I have my cat or my dog or my, my kids need to see me and my, you know, my grandkids need it. Okay, well, fine. It's not that you're not going to, you know, do things with them, but look at the, look at the slots in your dance car that are, that are full. Like this afternoon, I'm going over to a lady's house who's um, in her eighties and she's an artist. She paints. I'm going to go. I used to, I went back to painting a few years ago and I'm going to, I want to go back again. So I'm going to go visit her and I'm going to go get inspired to do some new, maybe do a new painting project, you know? So just whatever it is, just, and I just, I met her and Nick, she was sitting in the hairdresser. She was sitting at the hairdresser in the, in, in, in the seat right next to me last week. So to, you know, it takes a little, you know how it is, is this take for me, it, just, it takes a little openness. You know, you, you have a little bit of extra time. Just, you know, grab the brass ring. You do not know where something might lead you, Gail, right? So just be be enthusiastic about taking on new projects or looking at new things that you, you don't know what you may end up doing. But just the spark. Have Maintain the spark. I, I, I maintain the spark inside myself as if I were 16 years old. Mm-hmm. I learned to do that in a meditation class. You maintain that spark inside your heart as if you were 16 and that you would be out there, you know, exploring the world and just taking on some new ideas, taking in some new people, new ideas usually come with new people mm-hmm. and how we get kind of just stuck in our stodgy ways with the same old people all the time. Try just to step out once a month to, to have a lunch with somebody different or go do something different. So it's that kind of enthusiasm for just, you know, the sweet spot of who we are. Don't give up. Never give up. Catherine, <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you have? Uh, I was just going to, I was just thinking about another way of appreciate. We, we get to do that every week, Gail and I do, because we're meeting new uh, some of our our friends, but also new people like yourself, and it's just uh, it does keep that spark alive and make us want more and branching out. So thank you so much. Oh, it's so much my pleasure. I just love talking to you, ladies, and I love talking to your audience as well. You guys are um, you guys are in the sweet spot of why I wrote this book with you and your mm-hmm. audience. So thank you for having me. I really deeply appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. And before we leave, tell us where we can get your book and tell um, us the name again. The Upgrade, How the Female Brain Remakes Itself for the Better in the Second Half of Life or Gets Stronger and Better in the Second Half of Life. And, you know, you can get it off of Amazon. I like to use, if you can, if ever, anybody can, just get it, order it and get it from your local independent bookstore, of course. Um, it's also in audiobook. It's in Kindle. It's in like all other, you know, digital forms. So if you, you know, if you want it right away, you could just get the Kindle edition or a lot of us these days. Oh, there it is. Yes. It's a beautiful turquoise. It's bright. It's beautiful Mm -hmm. turquoise with the upgrade with that nice arrow up there showing, you know, how it goes. And, um, you know, you can also jump around in the book. I'll give yourself permission to look at the, at the, at the table of contents and jump around for what suits you. The ladies who are going to go or your grand, your, your daughters or whoever are going through the perimenopause time in the menopause. Those are chapters two, three, and four. And then if you want to jump right into the meat of, of some of, of the other things, you can just jump into like five, six, seven and, and go, go right for the, go right for what the good stuff to keep your brain for nutrition and exercise, all these things to keep your brain healthy and um, ready to seize every opportunity you have with enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> On We're that note, 
much. Enthusiasm is our word of the day. Thank you so much, Luann. We really appreciate your being here. Thank you.